Lorenzo, what do you think about sort of like human versus autonomous vehicles sharing roads? Because in my mind, I feel like you have to go through sort of this uncanny valley of like having some mixture of the two before you can actually get to or, or like reduce um, crashes and, and vehicular fatalities. Like, because in my mind, I think you have to be 100% autonomous. Because if there's some mixture, like the AI is not going to be able to deal with sort of the irrational behavior of human drivers. And it, it might be worse than just being 100% human. Well, this was always the, like the secret solution to self-driving, which is just to legislate and create sort of special lanes or special roads that only self-driving cars could drive on. But for whatever reason, it's it's just never talked about as a solution. Well, you know, with the new infrastructure plan, it would be interesting. It would have been good if they had thought about this and said, like, well, if we're going to just revamp our infrastructure for the first time in like decades, let's try to build it for the future by including like a self-driving car. But obviously, right, Congress is like always you know one step behind technologically, so I'm not surprised that they don't. Uh, one solution, uh, by the way, I saw on the uh, on this whole like what happens when humans are on the road type of scenario um, is when like human AI symbiosis where the, the car is self-driving, but in a moment of emergency, it automatically activates like a remote pilot uh, who's like trained to deal with those situations. That would be insane. Like some dude's <laughs> job in like the Philippines or India is just to like, <laughs> like tag in on these like insanely stressful. Oh I mean, well, like, but, but in a way, like it's totally gonna. I think you could get there with a truck. Like I think that's, that's that'd be hilarious. You could know, fully, you yeah, could, yeah, self-driving yeah. truck. You have a remotely driven truck. That's like mostly yeah. self-driving, but it's well, like, guided right by the joystick. Plus, it wouldn't, it yeah. wouldn't be patched in like immediately as the crash is happening and then they'd, actually, <laughs> they'd be like it'd be some sort of like risk uh, metric and when the risk metric is high enough they just like follow the car and like get get into the groove and then i guess like if it's raining or something they might be patched in and they'll just sit there and wait yeah, yeah. well that that's actually just, crazy just to think nothing about. about the situation <laughs> yeah no but like it's it's the new call center where you literally just have like a bunch of those like arcade type yeah. you know, seats and wheels and whatever and yeah, that'd be crazy. Well, in, dude, I would pay somebody to like drive for me if that were like a remote capability. Oh, like if 100%. they had a good, if, yeah, Davis, if they had a lot of reviews. You can drive for you. Yeah, <laughs> that person can drive you for you. <laughs> startup, startup. I guess that's like an easier way to do it too. Yeah. If someone does that as a startup, it needs to be called like chauffeur or something like that. <laughs> No, but if you do sort of the remote pilot, though, like you can free up the entire inside of the vehicle for like passengers. So if you think about it in the context of like it's Uber, but the Uber driver is not actually in the car. So the entirety of the car can be like the backseat of the limo or something like that. That's probably a way better experience than what we've got now. I'm glad you feel that way, Ryan, because I swear like there's this pattern of. Let's try to create human AI partnerships where the AI basically flags situations for the human element. And it tends to normally work AI alone. You see this in chess, for example. Like work together, chess engines and the best grandmasters. That's interesting. It was it was cutting out a bit, but I think I heard your point. That is crazy stuff.
it's a similar thing with the it's a similar thing with the doctor, right? Like uh, they've, they've done these studies where like you know the AI beats the doctor at diagnosing disease, but if you tell the AI, you know, if you train it so that you know uh, it's supposed to flag suspicious cases, you know, so it's much more comfortable with a f- false positive than a false negative. And you tell the doctor, hey, the AI is going to have a lot of false positives. Try to select out of these cases which ones are the false positives. The accuracy overall goes up. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. We do some of that research in my lab now because I, 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 I've been slowly selling them on this whole collective intelligence train, you know, <laughs> to get them to reconsider all these problems. Not as like AI has to fully automate something, but rather with like AI can augment human capability instead. Is that, is that the official term, collective intelligence? Oh, gosh. No, collective intelligence is like a whole like, research area. Uh, but like I, I guess when, when it, I guess I use collective intelligence because I think it's the same. It's the same principle behind the wisdom of crowds that makes humans and AIs work well together. It's this idea of like cognitive diversity, like different kind of talents, different viewpoints. They achieve a, cert- a certain like advantage if they're able to work well together. It's it's just like it's just that right. Collective intelligence is usually referenced in a macro level, like, oh, look at Wikipedia crowds in the world, or look at prediction markets forecasting elections. But it can even happen like at a more micro level, like let, you know, let doctors work with AIs as peers and then see if their accuracy of diagnosing disease goes up, and it does, over, over the AI, right. but, which is like super crazy. I, I think the reason that the wisdom of the crowd exists in the first place is that each participant is like off in a certain direction, but, but, but generally like all those directions cancel out. So for the, for the crowd to be wrong, everyone needs to be wrong in the same way. And that, and that's generally not true. So I wonder what the, I wonder what the, like, well, so you know, we can talk about this for hours because like it, it, for context, like my, most of my graduate research ended up being about collective intelligence. So, like, but no, no, but like, I'm okay. talking about this, but like, the, what, so you stepped into a trap already. <laughs> what, <laughs> but, what, uh, what it was you, uh, I thought is that, um, I think that, uh, if you look at a stock market, it's not quite like everybody's guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar, although, although it feels like that sometimes it's, it's a little bit more right. nuanced. Like, no, it's, it's all idea, like. Most people would not put money down unless they feel like they have some information to contribute. So you already you're not weighing everyone's participation equally. You're weighing it by, right. So already that makes it slightly different. And you get as complex as you want. You know, once you start analyzing from a stock market perspective, like the stock market is working as a collective intelligence mechanism. Like Davis and I have actually talked about this before. The stock market helps banks make better lending. The stock markets are less like less prone to error, or it's like they, they make less errors than any centralized entity at forecasting cash flows for corporations. So it makes it you know, right. easier for the bank right, to set up the interest rate for the loan, right? So the market consensus is that the future cash will be able to pay back this loan under this payment plan, right? Um, complex thing than, again, guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar, like people overshooting and undershooting and averaging it out. It's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 collective intelligence. Like, it, it, I think the again, if you think about it from the doctor and the AI working together to diagnose cancer, 
it's not quite like, oh, if you average two independent guesses, you get better, right? <laughs> it's like they, they're literally right. approaching the problem from two different perspectives. The integration of those two perspectives enable you to really like achieve like performance levels that like otherwise be impossible like on their own. Right. So just like in the market where some people might have a lot of information and other people are just kind of winging it and then the price ends up being really accurate. Do you think there is any point in just throwing in a bunch of bad models as well when you're doing, when you're doing oh. um, classification? So that's a, that's a fantastic question. There is actually a theorem in computer science that it's called the ensembling theorem. And it's basically that if you basically aggregate models that like are somewhat independent or uncorrelated to each other, you end up like with a better performance than any one of those models in, in isolation. It's all it's called ensemble learning. It's fascinating. And the the mathematical explanation behind this is it's called Condorcet's jury theorem. And basically, it's like this mathematical analysis that if you add to a jury somebody whose probability of being accurate is more than 0.5, so more than random, right? Inherently, by adding these people, you're, you're going to lower the uh, average error rate. And so that it's good to, they're going to be more accurate. So what you just said, like, as both a mathematical foundation is also empirically observing computer machine learning, right. especially, right? Uh, of this ensemblings kind of work. But I think collective intelligence goes somewhat one step further because it's not just like, let's add a bunch of uncorrelated signal processors together. It's a, it's much more about like, let's try to approach the problems from different perspectives. Whole in terms of like knowledge and information can be like generated. Cause like the way the human approaches cancer is so radically different. And the way the AI approaches cancer, that it's not just like, oh, whenever you average these two models, right? <laughs> You're reducing the noise, right? You're literally becoming more accurate, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, I wonder if, there, I, I, are there more sort of perspectives you can bring in? Because, I mean, yes, the human and the machine perspective are going to be vastly different. Is it possible to extend that process and just get third perspective, okay, okay. fourth perspective? So, so. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Oh my God. I'm so glad. I'm sorry if I'm getting too excited about this, but like, I love talking about collective intelligence. So, <laughs> uh, so here has been like, let's do it. Lorenzo's going to do a, a, a show about coll collective intelligence. I love it. <laughs> uh, so the, I've done a lot of research because, so if you look at the number of uh, success in prediction markets, um, it's uh, diversity. But it's not diversity from like a social perspective, like we're used to thinking about it. It's diversity perspective. So like literally like, again, how uncorrelated like are each of the agents in the system? Right. So, so then if you keep thinking about it as like a metaphor for life, right? And like you go a little bit further and like you start looking at experiments of like, okay, so the wisdom of crowds, right? What kind of is the wisdom of crowds? And here... So, so the two groups basically I've found that enhance collective intelligence, at least among humans so far, are first people on the autism spectrum. Because like they are basically so much better at certain tasks than neurotypical people. Uh, because they just literally like prioritize their perception just like some like like it's remarkably different than <laughs> that of neurotypical people. So like you, you've done all these experiments with like 
there's even a company that hires entirely people on the autism spectrum to analyze images for like Fortune 500 companies to make sure their like copy is like consistent from like all these things. Like so, that highly detail oriented work basically to find like minor changes, you know, in like Photoshop or something. So that's the first group. Like I think about it as instances of neurodiversity. So this idea that like in the statistical distribution of what our brains can kind of look like, right? There's like the typical kind of like the distribution, right? And then there are the tails, right? And most of the time the tails are like, you know, uh, mutations, so to say, that, do, that will not survive natural selection, right? Uh, but sometimes the mutations are like these things that like completely <laughs> change, you know, like what's possible. And um, and I really think that if you want to enhance collective intelligence, like including people that are neurodivergent, so like really focusing on neurodiversity uh, becomes super important because that's, that's very much like highly uncorrelated, highly independent type of thinking because neurodivergent people just cannot fit in into like typical thinking, right? Uh, or, you know, that's like typical behavior, you know, because like the, just be, be, who they are, right? Kind of destabilizes the assumptions, right, of the group uh, in a good way, in a good right. way. Right. I, this, is, this is super interesting and I know almost nothing about it, but do, do you think that um, sort of, I mean, it, with, with, with autism, probably it has something to do with the brain, but it feels like some of it could also be just behavior and you could almost just by ma making choices about what to focus on sort of end up in this, in this state where you just think differently. Do, do you think it's fully just a result of how your brain is, is structured or do you think there's some element of, of control that you have over how you, how you see things? Yeah. Or like you can train yourself over time. To see yeah. 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 So, um, I think they're like, uh, let's, let's think of like two kind of examples of this. First, I think, uh, extrovert introvert is a good example of this. That definitely, it's a good way of thinking about collective intelligence. Like you want to, as much as like the Myers-Briggs personality test or whatever is like, you know, not great or whatever, like it's better, you know, than any, it's better than nothing. Right. And so, um, being able to understand like, oh, everybody in your organization has this one-sided perspective because everybody's an extrovert right, is very helpful, right? So you can actually see kind of collective intelligence like in a more behavioral level, like the Myers-Briggs personality test uh, type of diversity. The other end of the spectrum, I think would be like just interdisciplinary teamwork. The example I've gone back to is if you think of the team behind AlphaFold, you know, the application of AlphaZero, uh, you know, by DeepMind to, pro, uh, to uh, protein folding, which defeated like the global network of scientists trying to fix, trying to you know solve protein folding. It was not a team. Like I think it was something like it was like three biochemists, two mathematicians, and two machine learning engineers. Like, <laughs> and it's just that they worked well together, which is one of the big lessons from collective intelligence. Is like they just had very different perspectives, but they were able to like work together into into this interdisciplinary way. So the mathematicians helped the biochemists reframe protein folding in a way that the machine learning models could solve them. And that literally was like the biggest breakthrough in, in the problem in like decades. Maybe, maybe this is like a, a university uh, reorganization waiting to happen. You, you break up the departments and then you only create groups based on people that actually can work well together. 
Totally. Then, Davis, can I, can I run a university in your charter city? It would be a collectively intelligent university. <laughs> That'd be sick. I, dude, absolutely. I think that would be a cool, yes, absolutely. In, in my non-existent charter city, you can, uh, no, but absolutely. I think that would be a cool thing as an aside. Do you just want to, out of curiosity, do you just want to follow this, like, maybe intellectual pursuit is the word or intellectual curiosity, like, in a re, I guess we've talked about it before, but in a research setting or, like, in a potential, like, profit-oriented business or kind of something in between or, or who even knows, maybe? Yeah, yeah, like, I think... Maybe it's probably too even too early to even know. It's, it's so far, I've mostly focused it on, um, in a research setting because, again, this was, like... Well, in grad school, in, like in an academic, like yeah. now though, for example, like I am applying it. So I'm no longer learning about collective intelligence as much, right? I'm applying it to a new domain of bioinformatics. So I'm already kind of seeing, because I'm trying to figure out basically like, where do you move the needle the most? If you're good at developing collective intelligence. Yeah, yeah that was yeah, kind yeah, of what exactly. I was getting at. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Th- I think that for sure, like there is a, uh, there's a huge kind of scientific contribution. Like if we had prediction markets for replication, for example, already we would solve like the credibility crisis in science because you would be able to have like a stock market, you know, where people with skin in the game, you know, are able to effectively identify when somebody's scamming. Like not like all the time, but it's like, it would definitely go a long way in preventing like psychology from becoming this kind of like <laughs> bubble, <laughs> you know? So, so, so yeah. I think that's like, you know, systemic ways. I feel the same way about economics. Do, exactly. Exactly. So like, so like the, there are definitely ways in which yeah. like it's, it's a, it can really contribute like in the kind of so- socio-technical aspect of science, like the sociology of it and the technical side. Um, but for sure, I mean, with crypto, I mean, you know, back when Chuck, I guess, I don't know if I'm allowed to reference his past life outside of uh, this company, but we had talked about a lot about prediction markets, you know, uh, because it could become like a prediction market could be the killer app for a blo- for the blockchain because you have to interface with all these different crypto protocols to create a prediction market. So all these services become like useful now because they enable the transaction of a prediction market to take place. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's I mean, if, if you make it as easy as possible to participate in the prediction market, then I guess you're going to get more more and different participants. Exactly. And I guess depend, and I guess depending on like, and finding the right product market fit for whatever this like, for whatever the competitive advantages in terms of like, if you want to call it neurodiversity, different perspectives, et cetera, wherever that like, wherever that sword is the sharpest. Or wherever that like cuts the deepest. Exactly. So, yeah. so th- that's why what, what I told Alex, the head of my lab, when we first started kind of chatting about working together, I straight up asked him, I was like, what are problems that are not tractable by AI right now that literally just AI cannot do? Because I was like, that inherently moves the needle, right? Like uh, a lot more. And if I, yeah. And because I did not want to the conversation to be around like, is the collective intelligence method, is a prediction market more accurate than a machine learning model at detecting cancer, right? I wanted to focus more on what is the problem that like there is no machine learning model for it. We don't even know how to create it, right? So, but where we can still like create, arrive at a meaningful solution with a collective intelligence method. And, and, and right now it's in things like, how do you encode 
the physical expression of genes uh, in a way that a machine can understand it. So how do you encode cuteness of a dog? How do you encode the physical phenotypes of a horse, right? How do you encode it for crops and like humans, right? And collective intelligence can do that effectively, like way, way better. And this, this is totally like, what's the word? Less noble than what you were just talking about. But I'd be curious looking at like gambling spreads, like before and after as they relate to the outcome of the event. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah totally. You know, totally. like I'm sure totally. people have done that, but that also, that's like, a, that's a similar mechanism. Oh, absolutely. Especially when the, spread, the gambling spreads, right, are for things like elections as opposed to like yeah, something yeah, yeah, yeah. sports. No offense to sports fans out there, but it's like, <laughs> I think like, you know, like, like if you could, if you could see the spreads change, well, think about it this way. It was like, if somebody is like, like, it's very hard for politicians to get a signal, right? Of like, did they do the right thing or not in terms of their own base? Most of the time, what they're doing is that they're following a poll. Like yeah. a poll, you know, that's like, oh, like your approval rating went from 50% to 48%. So it's probably what you just did is bad, right? But that's not a very accurate reading, you know, in all these yeah. different ways. Like if you had a prediction market, then the conversation becomes the kind of conversation we see every day on Wall Street, where in the short run, everything is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. Like a politician could still be right in like a longer term. It makes it a lot more mm -hmm. concrete, like, you know, yeah. the conversation. And and even like governance with you, Turkey. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, Turkey. Please, like, like let's open the let's open that door because I want to be able to talk about the political operating system for Mars. <laughs> so, what is few Turkey? <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I was, I was just about to say you could do like I'm I'm way too much of an authoritarian to like I guess let this happen in my charter city, but you could like do a charter city where that's the product market fit. Like what you're selling to people is the option to is like Futarchy? is is a what is it's the futarchy is that what you're talking about like futarchy? a charter city with it the futarchy is like but a government run by a prediction market basically oh okay yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about okay okay yeah 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 exactly yeah yeah no, no okay. dude totally because imagine like it would be and it could go in whatever way like maybe some are more socialist some are more communist or some it, exactly whatever. But, but mostly yeah. it focuses on like removing what i think is like the point the point the like waste of time aspect of politics, and you focus on a lot more concrete things like, are you moving the market? And sometimes you can be right, right? Like uh, yeah. all the dynamics that exist in the stock market would apply in the in the in the futarchy. So in some ways, it can, it's it's also potentially bad, right? Like there can be bubbles and stuff, right? But uh, for the most part, though, market discipline, right? That's a, that's what you're a fan of, right, Davis? Like market discipline, reinforcing right behavior over time. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I'm looking up few turkey now. I've never heard this word. It's uh, it's, it's going to be the political operating system for Mars, guys. I've thought about it. Like the form of government, which would be... elected officials define it. Oh, and yeah, yeah it's like the, using it's like using prediction markets to, to actually to actually allow people to. It's like using prediction markets for governance. It's amazing. So it's such a such an exciting like the the way yeah like like consider this Davis like so in uh, they've done these experiments like at Google Microsoft and IBM where they set up uh, prediction markets to forecast project completion time 
like forecasting project completion time is like a primary challenge of these large organizations. It's like, I was going to say, that's like a notoriously dysfunctional process. Noisy all the time, right? So the prediction markets were so yeah. much more accurate than management, but they stopped implementing it because they were disrupting the hierarchy of management so much because basically the product managers would come in like yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah man i'm gonna funny. do this in three weeks and the prediction market would be like no actually the consensus is it's like three months <laughs> you're gonna abandon this halfway finished after three months or something exactly so no but, but imagine like in a political setting it, it's it's very powerful it's very disruptive yeah, but in a good way in a good way against like entrenched or like you know, bureaucracies like it's very disruptive to like you know complacent system well how, how does that Dude, not it looks turn like, the into, uh, like mob oh, rule yeah. though that's a good question like, isn't this just a direct democracy if you're using it well, politically well, i think the difference is this like in a direct democracy you're not penalized for being wrong it's not as if you lose tokens right like it's not as if your vote is worth less oh so so in the in the prediction market it, it's yeah, like yeah, the yeah. votes are weighted Exactly, exactly. Cause it, it's like everybody Got gets, it. you know, like a hundred tokens or something. <laughs> you, you bet, you, right. put, you put a stake down on these decisions, right? And if you're wrong, like you just lose some tokens, right? And, and I think that's the key, right? Like it, 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 it penalizes being yeah. wrong, which is I think what's not happening in, and when I talk about political system, I don't even mean just governments. I even mean like large organizations, yeah. like political organizations, right? like where it becomes right. about like social coordination and peer pressuring each other into like, it's like a political struggle as opposed to like a substantive. I'm not so sure that um, systems where you're penalized for not voting with the majority are actually that good at producing good outcomes in all, all scenarios. So essentially the question you're trying to a answer as a voter is what are the all the other people most likely to vote on? So whatever is sort of, the lowest common denominator answer to any question is going to be what the group converges on if you punish them for, for doing anything else. And, and there are some decisions, I would imagine, where it's actually the minority opinion that needs to be, that is the be better one. Well, so, so hold on, Axel, but, but I, would, I would clarify two things. First, uh, I think obviously, like if it was just a few Tarki, it would have problems. But I think in the same way, the United States kind of iterated on democracy by creating a Supreme Court system like a legal system that would just check against minority rights infringement. Like, I think you would be like, you have that plus the futarchy. So you have like a lot of the structures that you had already exist plus the futarchy. Like, I think it becomes its own branch of government as supposed to the entire government. But uh, specifically like to your, to, to your, to your concern though, uh, they're not betting on, should we pass this bill or not? Most of the time they're betting on, will GDP go up after this bill is passed? or not right right and so you you want to basically find the right questions right where basically you, the, the prediction market unlike most unlike, like real life right uh, incentivizes a minority opinion because if you're right when everybody else is wrong like if you if you have like a 10 to 1 odds bet and you're right uh you make you know proportionally way more right whereas i think right now that's the problem in a democracy there is no incentive to be in the minority yeah. So, so the key here is that like all of the policy has an objective, um, measurable outcome. So you can say that somebody's definitively right versus wrong, as opposed to you are in the majority versus minority. Exactly, and which is why, right? It ends up like 
in a way incentivize right. it, it, it nudges the system to focus on measurable outcomes. <laughs> yeah. Precisely because it's like, otherwise like all symbolic stuff, which I think is mostly a waste of time. Like, you know, I'm all for like, like social coordination, right? Like, or whatever, but like, but for the most part, like substantive issues have a hard time. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Big. <laughs> this is so, but basically, yeah, like the, uh, the, it does not end up being about substance because like a lot of the issues that are, that cause a political system to kind of uh, implode, you know, because it's, in, it's like in this sclerotic state uh, are because it, it gets stuck in like these loops of unsolvable issues where there is no metric where you're right or wrong and it just becomes like you know a hyper-polarized social issue with no measurable way out right i mean maybe you can even say that the current current governments are actually quite good at solving things that can be measured qualitatively like they're quite good at creating legislation to generally address perceived concerns and then what's totally lacking is just the ability to properly govern based on based on metrics and qualifiers. Sorry, quantifiers. Well, I, I think it's it's why you know countries with stock markets tend to be better economically than countries without stock markets because I think again stock markets give. It's why we use the market right as an indicator of like. Like, like I remember, you know, when, when for example, like Trump just first got in office, right? Like the fact that, for example, the prediction that the market would crash did not manifest itself, and instead the market went up, radically forced Wall Street to adjust to update their beliefs, right? But in the political sense, nothing changed. Like nobody used that to change their mind one way or the other, right? Uh, and I think that shows you the difference. It's like in a market system like you're enforced like the discipline is enforced right by the, by the betting system you know and you know th that's not the case in the in this the purely political sphere but i think that's why the interaction between the two helps political systems be less biased basically it becomes slightly more accurate over time what, what, what about what about this so betting markets online generally are legal in europe and generally, they are illegal here. So there's no website you can go to in the U.S. and bet on, you know, you know, the weather next week or something like that. But there is in Europe. Um, would this mean necessarily that, like, sports teams have much more signal to work on in Europe than than in the U.S. because there is a market in some sense for like their future performance? Uh, that's a great question. It's a good question. You would think the market would balance in some way. Well, actually, well, anyways, I, I take this question. back. I guess you can just bet on U.S. teams in Europe, too. So maybe this is nonsensical. Well, but, but, but I do think that uh, in, uh, we, we definitely use the market for athletes. Like, I think coaches definitely use market prices for athletes' contracts as indicators of potential. So, like, right. already that shows you how a market mechanism exactly, market exactly, mechanism. exactly, exactly. So, it, it, and again, it's just better data. I'm not... I. In the same way, I'm not the kind of person, like a moment ago, we were talking about how I don't believe in AI trying to replace human-like decision-making. I just, I believe in the integration. I don't believe in prediction markets, like try to replace everything. I just think that it should be integrated into our decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. Or into some specific UK use cases, like with even within a business, like project management, to your point. Like there could be yeah. some, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Especially because, Davis, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on this since you run like a global team, you know, and like it's a complex, like, you know, <laughs> chain, like the... Upcoming monopoly. Right, yeah, upcoming monopoly. 
one of the things that um, always comes up when you read up on like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 is this idea that like th th a lot of the analysts on the ground actually had the information. It just was not propagated up to a decision-making authority quickly. And apparently this happens a lot in like supply chain-driven businesses, right? Where there's like information on the ground that's not quickly back up. Yeah. I was going to ask you like you know, this, this notion of like the information did not get up quickly enough to make a decision, right? Based on what was happening on the ground. Like, do you, do you get that? Yeah, it definitely happens with customer service agents, which kind of makes sense, right? Because they're in the trenches, like they're the most, in a way, like customer facing you could possibly get. So that, that, that especially so, so happens. They, yeah. So they collect they're literally the interface with, you know, customers. So in a way, there's the potential for a collective intelligence mechanism for call center agents to basically crowdsource product improvements. In a way, yeah, like just to like go over. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Like just to go over inbound what, customer what, service yes, tickets, cause, cause just yeah. like, yeah. Exactly. But, but yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. right now, right, most of the time, uh, it's just that the customer service agent talks to a customer and then they file the ticket, right? The priority of the tickets, though, is yeah. just as important of a question is where I think collective intelligence can help. What if you had the customer service agents, right? They had like, some, like again, like a collective intelligence optimized voting system to rank your tickets in terms of what exactly market. No, 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 oh. they would rank your tickets or product exactly. improvements, yeah, yeah, not yeah, product like, market. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. wouldn't it make it easier? Because then, because that's the way I've been framing this, even in, in my lab is like, because then in a situation like that, I'm not literally saying like automatically work on the ticket that, you know, gets ranked to one, right. It's ranked at the top. Uh, I'm more saying like, you pick the top yeah. 10 and then you as the CEO make the decision about what to work on. But you use that as a brainstorming process, basically. That's totally fair. And I think, I think it's a good idea. And like, even to that point, dude, I heard Marissa Mayer when she was the CEO of Yahoo, she like, one of the first things she did was like set up just like a simple web app where people could like submit improvements and then people could vote on them. Inter just internally, nothing to do with customer service. It, Amazing. But in terms of was, like, was that... people wanted daycare or like shit like that, or like they wanted treadmills, you know, wherever. Yeah, yeah. Was th was that by the way in in our in the class where we met the Reed Hoffman class where? No, he, I think he I, interviewed. Us, she was like, there. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I read it in a book about her called like. So I forget, probably have it, but I forget the name. Dude, those sort of collective. While well, I was looking for the photo, those sort of like utilizing collective intelligence type of mechanisms that must have been tried in finance, right? That's like an obvious first application of like, well, well, you know, or something similar are the ultimate example of this. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. Get, yeah. The you pricing system about, is the, you, you know, in, in potentially as a business, you know, uh, opportunity, like, you know, talking about, remember when we talked about the VIX, like the VIX is a crowdsourced yeah, indicator, yeah, yeah. Like the trading of those derivatives crowdsources so estimates of a volatility, which is amazing. This imputed value, yeah, or this like yeah. imputed metric. So, um, you, you know, one example that always shows up in the collective intelligence literature is the Waffle House index, which is what FEMA has started using that Waffle House produces. Yeah, yeah. Waffle so Waffle House uh, wants to be open 24 7, and their supply chain system is so effective, not necessarily at identifying the risk of a hurricane, but it's effective at forecasting its intensity. It's, it's so successful that FEMA created its own, in, like, like started using the Waffle House index to predict really? how much aid to send. Yeah. Huh. 
collective intelligence, yo, I'm telling you, like this stuff is like that's a big deal. <laughs> oh, interesting. And so it's just an index on like how much Waffle House, what Waffle House is doing to supply. Basically, yeah, like how many stores. are going to be open and stuff. Yeah, like and it ends up being a, and obviously it's not yeah, 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 a yeah, causation, yeah. right? But it's a correlation. It becomes a proxy. It becomes a proxy and it's a useful proxy. And once you have a useful proxy yeah. or a reliable proxy, well, because that's the thing, like you just want a reliable proxy because most of the time you're not caring about the accuracy, you're caring about the volatility, right? Um, and so, the, you know, you can create all these indicators and all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, especially as people start trading on them, right? Like you start being able to have forecasts about the future. You start being able to identify the relationships between these different metrics, you know, how they're correlated and not correlated. We, we can just like basically transfer all of the human capital to get, to get sucked up by finance, marginally optimizing the price discovery of like these derivatives, right? And we can redirect that at doing the same exact thing, arguably for the same level of profit, but for socially useful things like <laughs> forecasting, you know, like food supply or like scientific yeah. breakthroughs. Like, are you familiar, by the way, with the, uh, is it the Simon Ehrlich wager? You know what I'm talking about? The okay, Yes. The, yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Okay, so of course. No, no, yeah. No, yeah. 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 That's talk, hilarious. Like, that's awesome. I, I love yeah, yeah, yeah. that. So, so, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about it. Cause I feel like that, that that's going to be a, that's it's, it's a great, it's a great example of like the power of this kind of mechanism. So why don't, why don't you begin by describing it? I I literally have uh, a couple books by Julian Simon and uh, but you're talking about the one where they bet on the price of uh, they bet on the real price of commodities right over yes, a ten year period yes, yes. yeah well, I, yeah, I think yeah. it was a little so, bit like, more potentially but yes yes uh, fair enough uh, he was like an ecologist and he Stanford, was right? he was kind of shell he was selling yeah probably it but he was selling his whole shtick about. You know, resources are becoming more scarce. Oil becoming more scarce. We're using up resource on the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Like we need to throttle birth rates. Like we need to stop people from having kids. Like really, Club of Rome, like drastic stuff. Club of Rome was very, very drastic. Yes. But anyways, uh, an economist said, okay, if that's true, then let's make a bet on the real inflation-adjusted real price of any ten commodities you want, or twenty, or whatever it was. And in 10 years, you know, theoretically, if we're running out of oil, the price of oil should be a lot higher in 10 years, just logically. And anyways, <laughs> he then made the bet. And, of course, the economist won because that isn't the, the amount of oil reserves actually went up over a 10 year period, not down. So but the story gets a little bit so. more complicated. It gets, gets a little more complicated because uh, Simon lost, right, because he didn't foresee the uh, green revolution like modern fertilizer. Because that, that's what made a big difference in terms of food, right? Mm. Uh, and that's what all these Malthusian predictions. Or Ehrlich lost, but yeah. Ehrlich lost. Like, because that's what yeah. all these Malthusian predictions always underestimate, like technological yeah. change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also, like, I think he would have won the bet 30 years later. Like, it's interesting if, you, if, if they kept the bet going. Like, it would have been interesting to see. Because, like, I, I think, like, in different decades. What would have happened? He would have yeah. been right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so it probably and would, and that's what I mean. We should be trading that all the time, right? Because that would be the climate change trade. It would enable us to effectively yeah. get people to put skin in the game on what the market consensus of the impact of climate change is. 
Wait, 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 wait. Uh, sorry, I missed. I missed the, the part of the the wager was the, whether the or not wager was the, the world real was going to end. No, no, no. It was the real price of commodities. So Ehrlich was saying, "Oh, oil. We're running out of oil. We're running out of water. We're running out of magnesium, coal, everything." And Julian Simon said, "Okay, if that's true, then the price logically should be higher in ten years than it is today because it's getting more scarce." So he said, "Let's make a bet," and prices went down, not up, over a ten-year period. So that that's kind of the interest right. of that, um, dude, Lorenzo. I'm actually looking. Uh, Julian Simon wrote a book called Ultimate Resource that I bought, and he had this brilliant line where he said, "What did he? Because he was arguing about Paul Ehrlich was saying like because Club of Rome was advocating like reductions on population, right? Well, the like UN sterilizing ended people. Up, the, the UN ended up arguing for it, which is why China." one-child policy which is insane they they part of it was it, pushed by the un as a way of preventing a climate it, which is yeah it like but but anyways that is but he had some great line julian simon did about having more people he i'm looking for it but he effectively says that like the best reason why we need more people is the same reason why we needed a paul ehrlich in the first place it's yeah. like the, it was like beautiful logic. He was saying like, you know, Paul Ehrlich doesn't want more people, but I want more people for the same for the reason that Paul Ehrlich is even making this bet. Like like that more people, more immigrants. And Julian Simon was also super pro immigration. Yeah. Shout out to human, uh, immigrants. I, I have the a capital of America. Woohoo! Dude, it's free entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a there's a way to. Like my way of summarizing the the Malthus question is like it's it's actually a question of like where wealth comes from, and there there are sort of two general takes that have existed yeah. throughout history. So during Malthus's time, I think he lived in Victorian England. The overwhelming consensus was that wealth just came from land, and it's it's not that strange. Like given where he lived, it's it, that's not a strange strange position you, you know a lot of you need a lot of land to do anything there's still a lot of farming going going on and then the cities were just sort of terrible and, and disease ridden and to conclude in a moment like that the wealth comes from land not people is, is not that strange um and then interesting at, at some point sometime later that's yeah a, at some point, point sometime later i don't know when because that is the debate right right but, but the, the consensus switched so if you if you go past the Victorian age, maybe it switched like post World War II or something like that. The consensus just switched to wealth. Wealth comes from people, and, and the more the more people, the better. And I think that's that's broadly that's broadly true. But but obviously, if you take a country and then you increase the population by by ten percent, it's going to become ten percent richer. It's it's not going to like accelerate away in some crazy way. So the truth is probably that wealth just comes from technology. Which is exactly. which is just leverage on humans. So more humans generally is better, but technology is even more important. Totally, that's interesting. And, and parenthetically, I know what you're talking about in terms of where the source of wealth. And like, if you look up the Marginal Revolution in the 1870s, and that was kind of like what we look at is like you might find that interesting. That was like a massive sea change in a few economists. Like Karl Menger was one of them. He's like one of my favorite economists, but 
that was like the radical change, so to speak, of like economic economic values derived from the mind in terms of like simply subjective desire. Anyway, so maybe that's what yeah, you like were the, why is a diamond more expensive than water? Because the marginal. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's why Tyler Cohen's blog is called Marginal Revolution or Marginal University is like after that period that right. I think you're referencing. So anyways, that, uh, that might be of interest to you. So also- I still need to go on like a Cowan binge read. I've, I've read The Great Stagnation and Stubborn Attachments, but nothing else of what, what he's written. And I know the blog is supposed to be amazing. Oh, the blog uh, is still amazing. Yeah. Like I, almost the blog is better than the book. Like you read the two better books. Like they, I bet know. the blog is better. Uh, oh, yeah. The blog, the blog right. is, uh, I mean, it saves you so much time. It saves you so much time. Like there's no reason as to why. Like he's doing such such a great public service, sharing what he's reading, and you know what he's coming across in his network. That uh, it's just so. Like I'm obviously biased because like I swear like you know a solid twenty percent of like what I think our original ideas ended up coming from Cowan in some way or another. So uh, I'm very I'm definitely very inspired by him. But you know even Patrick Carlson, the founder of Stripe, is very inspired by him. Uh, I think he's very. It's such a great content machine. I learned so much all the time by reading his newsletter. He's an original dude. Also, to interject, I found the line that I love. This is brilliant rhetoric. I think you'd appreciate it. Big... For context, Axel and Ryan, this is this is Julian Simon's book. He already won the bet at this point against the ecologist. Julian Simon is the economist, and this is he's like talking. He's talking about Ehrlich and Davies, these two ecologists who are kind of doomsdayists, and he says. A more interesting reason is that we need another person for exactly the same reason we need Davies and Ehrlich, the ecologists. That is, just as the Davies and Ehrlichs of the world are of value to the rest of us, so will the average additional person be of value. Hmm. Is it? Anyways, I'd, that's such like a jujitsu move in terms of like a rhetorical device. Anyways, I, lo- I was like, wow, what a magnanimous response. Yeah. Anyways. I, I, I wish, again... But this is what I mean about revolutionizing science with prediction markets and collective intelligence. If scientists bet against each other more, it would be way easier to assign grant funding to promising projects that work. <laughs> you know, if there wasn't this like hyper noisy. Yeah. And I think, and I think that that's why. Uh, and I guess I'll conclude with this because I really need to go home. And I, I'm already out, but I want to go to bed in a little bit. But like, I want to end with one of the. One of the papers that uh, Andres actually ended up publishing, we uh, we published this design for a new type of prediction market. Uh, we did this for the Collective Intelligence Conference in 2020. And the idea is that as opposed to betting on betting the traditional way, where it's kind of like horse racing, you create like a combinatorial prediction market where you're betting on the relationship. Like you're betting like, you know, on like the price that C will happen if B happens. Like, so you're betting on the relationships basically, right? Ooh. So you're, mm. so you're, what's the, what's, well, wait, wait, what's the question? What's the purpose of betting on yeah, multiple yeah, things? That's, that's what yeah, that's what I'm going to say. So, so like usually, right, a combinatorial prediction market is very, is designed for complex decision trees where you're trying to basically figure out, okay, there are all these nodes. If you think about it as a network, there are all these nodes, right? What is the weight of the edges? You know, as you're as you're approaching this decision tree, right? And it's decision point. So, what is the probability given all these 
because obviously, you know, the probability of each outcome, right, at all these different stages affects like, you know, the payoff value, right, of that particular branch of the decision tree. But, you know, a lot of times you have a complex decision tree where you don't know in advance, right, what the possible things are, right? Uh, with the book, you know, kind of the ways in which all the possible consequences can unfold. Specifically, this this is a huge problem for science in general. Like, we don't know which concepts can come together to lead a breakthrough in a field. You know, think of DeepMind, right? Like, they brought together math, biochemistry, and machine learning concepts to have a breakthrough in protein folding with artificial intelligence. It's just usually not clear. Uh, the example that we actually give is math, actually. Like, can two proofs come together to prove another theorem? Like that question is hard to figure out, right? Especially in advance. So most scientists, especially most mathematicians, right? Are going out blind most of the time. Like they're thinking, okay, let me just randomly see if, you, if I can solve this problem by combining these two methods. And they're just trying these things randomly. And eventually, you know, everyone, like in their, in their random walk, they strike upon a breakthrough. Like, oh yeah, use method A, B, and C, and all of a sudden you solved Fermat's last theorem, right? But as math has gotten more complex, the, the concepts are coming from radically different fields that most people are not specialized in, so they don't see these connections beforehand. So how do you identify these complex connections between mathematical proofs that can lead to breakthroughs in solving theorems? You use the prediction market to crowdsource the weights of a DAG, you know, a directed acyclic graph, right? Of all the possible combinations of the proofs to solve, uh, to lead a particular breakthrough. So scientists basically start betting on, I may not know what gets us there, but I know that like, you know, proof B and C come together to prove something related to this theorem. I just don't know what A will be. And so all of a sudden you're crowdsourcing a real time map is new data is coming in of promising combinations of concepts that people should try to lead to this breakthrough. And then once they try and it fails, like the network updates itself because the prediction market updates, like, okay, okay, so clearly this combination failed. But in the process, you're crowdsourcing basically like different options for breakthroughs because like they would be the highest, you know, the highest probability, basically, uh, the highest probability options to have a breakthrough in math. I, I, have, I don't have a lot of experience in math research, but I, I have done some um, just com complexity complexity theory. And I mean, this, this would be, if you're, if you're setting out to prove something, it'd be incredibly helpful just to have a global public map of maybe related exactly. that are available to you. And then it's like this impartial thing and you can just pick up a thread that's available. Exactly, exactly. Oh my God, let me put the fire emoji. Yes. I'm so glad you feel this way. Okay. <laughs> I haven't even used the emoji yet. Uh, because, exactly. Because like, otherwise you're in the blind. You're, you're totally, like, Nicole, you have no idea, right? Like, it's a search space that's constantly increasing and you don't know where to start. And I mean, being an expert in something is really just having a good, I mean, I mean, it's, it's many things, but it's partly having a really good mental map of what's what's out there, so you can immediately just prune like parts of the search tree, and you, you have a really good sort of feel for what the area in which in which exactly. The and so, and I'm going to say it here, 
you know, on the app so that it's recorded for you all, right? Like I straight up think that without a prediction market for scientific breakthroughs, we're not going to solve the rest of the millennium problems. Is that, is that something you'd be willing to bet on? <laughs> oh, <laughs> in a way, yes. Like I, one of the projects I discussed with my lab is actually setting up a prediction market for the millennium problems. But what, what, what is getting predicted? Like what, what uh, question which, are people betting on? Uh, people start betting on a combinatorial oh. basis, like the combinations of concepts. They're going to be related to the proof. Right. Because e really even cool. knowing that is helpful because like, then you know if you want to work on the problem, you know what to study. Like you're going to be like, okay, so these 20 concepts, people are willing to put money down that are going to end up being related to the proof of this thing, right? So maybe I should just learn it. And then if people find like, if, as more people learn the concept, they're like, I don't think this is related, like the price will change. And like, it just, it, 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 it and that's what markets do. They, they allocate scarce resources and a prediction market for science would reallocate the scarcity of like scientific expertise and attention. Is there is there a way to to like, I mean, crisis for solving problems is, is great, but is there a way to to just make money from the prediction market if you have sort of a, a better sense of, of which proofs are going to be useful than, than others? Like, can can you arbitrage it somehow? Sort of. Like, I mean, you can have all the sorts of profit opportunities you would normally see in a stock market, but uh, you know, that helps with uh, that helps with market efficiency. What's what's interesting about this, though, is that the you're not looking for perfect forecasts here, because unlike in a stock market where you're actually trying to forecast these future cash flows uh, here, you're trying to just basically effectively prioritize an otherwise intractable amount of options to search to, from. So I think that's the, I think, I think that's the, I think, I think that's the way it ends up like very, being very helpful. But, but like, that's what I'm saying though about redirecting human capital. Like if you had a prediction market for science that was as thick as like most crypto projects, you would have entire hedge funds being started betting on scientific breakthroughs as opposed to bullshit coins, right? Or marginally improving prices. <laughs> no, no, but I'm serious. I'm like, there's no reason right, as right. to why we would not be able to set up the with crypto, especially the kind of prediction market that would like make it worthwhile for people to start hedge funds to bet on science. I, I have a question in terms of um, with the resource allocation. Yeah. So when you're talking about using the prediction market to more efficiently allocate scarce resources, are you solely talking about human capital, or is there some sort of monetary allocation oh, that's also occurring? So I've thought about this. So, cause um, you know, uh, one of the primary, I mean, the, one of the sets in academia, uh, which unfortunately is one of the dominant systems of science is uh, grants. And I always kept thinking like, okay, <clears throat> actually Andres and I were trying to do this with uh, Stripe because they, they have fast grants. Like they're trying to get out this grant money very quickly. And we were like, what if you set up a prediction market for all the things that are pitched for the grants and you allocate grant money partly based on the results of the prediction market. I would certainly do this, you know, like it would be a, a much more trustworthy way of allocating research funding. If you said like, okay, 
there are 10 DARPA projects. We'll do scientists think about them and then, you know, allocate money accordingly. Like that would get, that would be great marketing yeah. incidentally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. My sort of hesitation here is that it seems like you have to lock up a lot of you know, financial capital to, in order for the like market infrastructure to exist. Cause if you're not putting like actual money on the line in terms of, you know, betting on say which combination of proofs are going to lead to the next mathematical proof, the, the markets maybe not like doesn't have the incentive structure it needs to actually, you know, affect change in the research. And so, yeah, my only concern there would be like, so what, what is the, what is the cost of running the market and how much, like, what is the dollar value of the resources that it sucks out of what, you know, instead could have just been directly going into grants, if, if that makes sense. Right, right. The, 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 yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, I think part of what's cool, though, is this notion of, uh, okay, okay, there are two things here. Like, first, the grantee can say something like, I will put part of my grant money as like a bounty, right, on the project. Because, like, I think that's why it works better for projects a lot of times than like, combinations, because then if the project fails, the project fails, if there's a terminal end state, right? So you'd be able to see like, this drug does not become a pharmaceutical five years later and all these things, right? Uh, but like in the context of the combinatorial for math, like the idea yeah. is like, it gets falsified very quickly. Like if the combination is explored and it doesn't lead to a breakthrough, then the price should drop to zero, right? Because the combination didn't work. So it's almost like in the short run, it's people are trying are just trading on will the combination work or not right uh in the long run they end up like slowly crowdsourcing slowly accumulating the solution to the math problem hey guys i uh i want lorenzo to to be able to work tomorrow right. so i think we should probably wrap it up i want to end if you don't mind i there's this great quote from uh, friedrich hayek in his essay the use of knowledge in society which is what most collective intelligence... Fantastic yeah, essay. And parallels it's everything we're talking about. Exactly. That is directly... Go Hayek, you know. Um, and, you know, it's very relevant to crypto, but also specifically to prediction markets and collective intelligence. I have deliberately used the word marvel to shock the reader out of the complacency with which we often take the working of this mechanism, the mechanism being the price mechanism, um, for granted. I am convinced that if it were the result of deliberate human design, and if the people guided by the price changes understood that the decisions of significance far beyond their immediate aim, this mechanism would have been acclaimed as one of the greatest triumphs of the human mind. Wow. All right. And what is, what is that from again? The use of knowledge in society. Awesome. I'm gonna check that out. Good note to end on. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, everyone.